0: This is Laura London, and you're listening to Speaking of Jung. Returning to the podcast today is Jungian analyst and author, Dr. James Hollis. He was born in Springfield, Illinois, graduated from Manchester University in 1962 and drew University in 1967. He taught humanities for 26 years in various colleges and universities before retraining as a Jungian analyst at the C.G. Jung Institute Zurich from 1977 to 1982. He served as executive director of the C.G. Jung Educational Center of Houston, Texas for many years, was a senior training analyst for the Interregional Society of Jungian Analysts, the first director of training at the Philadelphia Jung Institute, and is vice president emeritus of the Philemon Foundation. He is also a co-founder of the Jungian Studies Program at Saybrook University in San Francisco and Houston. Dr. Hollis is presently the Executive Director of the Jung Society of Washington, D.C., where he is also in private practice. He has written a total of 14 books, and I'm going to name them all. They are Creating a Life, Finding Your Individual Path, Finding Meaning in the Second Half of Life, How to Finally Really Grow Up. Hauntings, dispelling the ghosts who run our lives. Mythologems, incarnations of the invisible world. On this journey we call our life, living the questions. Swamplands of the soul, new life in dismal places. The archetypal imagination. The Eden project, in search of the magical other. The middle passage, from misery to meaning in midlife. The audiobook Through the Dark Wood, Finding Meaning in the Second Half of Life, Tracking the Gods, The Place of Myth in Modern Life, Under Saturn's Shadow, The Wounding and Healing of Men, What Matters Most, Living a More Considered Life, and my personal favorite, Why Good People Do Bad Things, Understanding Our Darker Selves. His new book, due out in February, is Living and Examine Life, Wisdom for the Second Half of the Journey, a 21-step plan for addressing the unfinished business of your life, and it's available to pre-order right now. You can visit our website, speakingofjung.com, for links to all of these titles. My first introduction to Dr. Hollis's work was through his 1998 title by Inner City Books called The Eden Project, In Search of the Magical Other, a Jungian perspective on relationship. Three years later, in March of 2001, he came to Columbus, Ohio, where I was living at the time, to give a lecture about the book. I still to this day refer to the notes I took that night, and it's the subject of our talk today. This interview was recorded on Wednesday, August 16, 2017, through the magic of Skype. In preparation for this episode of the podcast, which is about your book, The Eden Project, in search of the magical other, I've been, as I usually do, I take to Twitter to tweet quotes from the book. Um, It helps me read and I like to share what I'm reading and it it just helps me keep things organized and process things and go over things. And I've had a tremendous response to um, what I've been tweeting, but I've only gotten through the first 60 pages. And this is, i um, looking to see how many pages this book is. It is 144. And that's one of the things I have to say I love about Inner City Books books is that they're very manageable. Um, they're kind of small, thin paperback books, but they are chock full of great material. Somebody had tweeted me the other day, and she she wrote in response to a quote from the book, she said, when reading James Hollis, almost every sentence is an entry point for reflection and growth. And that reminded me of something that I heard Cheryl Crow say about Bob Dylan. He gave her a song for her 36th birthday to put on her record, which coincidentally came out the same year as this book, 1998. Um, the Globe Sessions. The song is Mississippi. And she said, you could take every line of that song and make a new song of it. And that's kind of how I feel about this book, that every sentence is something that you can just sit with and think about and talk about and write about. So I'm going to let you talk now. Um, Would you tell us a little bit about this book and how you came up with this kind of concept of the magical other and what that means.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: Well, what I found through the years was that um, sooner or later, uh, no matter what the topic of conversation was in um, public lectures or in individual therapy, things wound around to the issue of relationship. So um, I began to ask myself the question, why is it that relationships are so important? And the answer is at some level, because they're important. Um, and then then I began to ask myself, is it possible that that very importance is carrying a lot of psychological baggage here? And ironically, that's what led me into um, the consideration of the topic of the dynamics of intimate relationship. Uh, it, it wasn't uh, years of working with couples or individuals in the difficulties of uh, their relational life it was more questioning um, you know what is the role of relationship for us and and what is it that constitutes its gift and what are the limitations and what is it that we bring to the table and um, what what is it that we need to become more uh, uh, conscious around and more more accountable for in our relationships
0: you mention Um, It wasn't because you were doing a lot of couples counseling. And just Mm -hmm. in general, in Jungian analysis, that's not typically how that operates, is it? That it isn't typically couples counseling?
2: Uh, No. I mean, usually we focus on the individual in relationship to him or herself. Um, And of course, for so many people, the issue also involves the quality and and problems of of their relationships. So uh, I don't do couples therapy anymore. I stopped doing that about 20 some years ago, but um, I I did for a while and I wouldn't call it union analysis at the time. It was really couples therapy. Okay. So there's a line between them, uh, I think. On the other hand, you know, it was the union lens that allowed me to sort of ask questions of people that might not have been asked in typical couples therapy.
0: I'm sorry, I, I had interrupted you. Well, that's okay.
2: Uh, I, and I was, I was just reflecting on how I, I sort of almost backed into the subject. It's like, why are relationships so important? Mm-hmm. And the obvious answer is, well, because they are. We, we, we live our lives with relationships, and there's a truth to that. But then you have to ask yourself, why is there so much baggage attached to it? What, what is the extra level of, of traffic there? And, and then I began to reflect on, you know, the nature of our journey, uh, we begin and end this brief transit we call our lives with radical separation from the other. You know, we are violently expelled from a home, from a, a kind of nurturant relationship
1: mm-hmm.
2: into the perils and limitations of our existential condition. You know, we're assaulted by light, sound, gravity, all of these forces in a completely vulnerable and dependent state. And of course, we end this journey by by leaving relationship too. So, you know, life is as is so obvious, is a series of attachments and losses, attachments and losses, attachments and losses, and and so forth. So, in in some way, you could say it's wired to our neurology, this trauma of separation from relationship. And so there's always some part of us that's seeking to reconnect. And of course, we can reconnect in in many ways. And of course, Freud went a long way in pointing out how often that desire for connection, which he really called eros. You know, eros is about the energy of connection. And, uh, you know, it it gets sublimated into um, all kinds of cultural activities and, and so forth. But underneath that is this very profound experience of the trauma of separation. And so I began to reflect on, well, the trauma of separation metaphorically was described in the the Western tradition, at least in part by the Genesis story, in which one saw the uh, ostensible Adam and Eve sort of linked in an instinctual way and in in a kind of unconscious way to the sort of Edenic state where, you know, their needs are met and, and life is without ostensible complication. But then the complexity enters and they are separated from that state. You know, and one thinks of the pathos of those lines in John Milton and they with wandering steps of slow out of Eden, wound their solitary way, you know, leaving that state of connection forever. And uh, so there are a thousand, thousand ways in which people seek connection. You know, one of which is eating, for example. You know, we have so many eating disorders in our culture because we project onto matter, not just sort of refueling the engine that we are, but we refuel, we we project onto it our our nurturant needs, obviously. And so food becomes, for so many people, uh, a charged symbolic object. And as such, uh, you know, plays a psychological role in their lives rather than simply a, a functional role. If that weren't the case, we wouldn't have any eating disorders, whether of anorexia, you know, bulimia or obesity or, or whatever. And the the less we feel connected, you know, to the gods, to our tribe, to each other, the, the more these surrogate connections will begin to um, exercise a, a role larger than, you know, theoretically they ought to exercise.
0: Now, I've heard you mention, and it's throughout your books, you mentioned the gods, gods with a small g. What exactly yeah. do you mean by that?
2: It's simply a metaphoric way of talking about the, the sort of the powers that move the universe. Um, you know, it's a way of personifying, if you will, impersonal powers. Uh, I'd I prefer not to use the word God because that calls up too many concrete associations in people's histories, either positive or negative, as the case may be. Um, and then to talk about the gods as a, as a way of sort of describing the importance of our relationship to these powers and to realize that, for example, in uh, the, the universe, there are forces at work to which we are all subject, whether we're conscious of that or not, and that uh, every time we arrogate to ourselves uh, the fantasy that we are sovereign beings in charge of the world and and so forth, these, these powers begin to um, you know, exercise their will and, and sort of bring us back in line. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I just finished uh, preparing a presentation on the play, Antigone, which is almost wow. 2,500 years old. And, and wow. in there, we see not only a crisis of personal conscience for the uh, named figure, Antigone, but, but the real tragedy is about Creon, the ruler, who takes a very rigid uh, position in in life and as a result of his arrogance and rigidity, he brings death to her to his wife Eurydice and to uh, his son Amon. and in the end, he's completely humbled in the process and and we, we see in a certain way how narcissistic arrogance and the abuse of power ultimately leads to its own defeat and, and downfall. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about the gods, again, it's just a way of, of talking about the fact that we live in a contingent universe and that we need to be mindful at all times of, of living in a um, proper relationship, which is a relationship of mindfulness and a relationship of uh, essential humility.
0: It's interesting you mentioned Antigone because I um, had mentioned earlier the song uh, Mississippi and on that record, there's another song um, in which she mentions Antigone. So back to the concept of the book, um, you say that the magical other is the notion that there is one person out there who is right for us, who mm-hmm. will make our lives work, a soulmate who will repair the ravages of our personal history, one who will be there for us, who will read our minds, know what we want, and meet those deepest needs a good parent who will protect us from suffering and, if we are lucky, spare us the perilous journey of individuation. Mm-hmm.
2: Kind of a loaded paragraph, isn't it?
0: Yeah. And, of course, that, that when you begin to
2: unpack that deep sense of longing and, and urgency for connection, then you begin to realize it takes us back to our primal state of, of disconnect. And that's why I called it the, the the Eden Project. It's the desire to recover that sense of uh, sort of completeness, of wholeness, and so forth, which is one reason why people will cling to relationships that are not healthy for other reasons, uh, often abusive relationships, because the, the sort of uh, need, the trauma of uh, disconnect has been so profound in their lives that they they prefer the problem they have to to the unknown uh, sort of archetypal problem that that awaits them and so in in each of us i think there is a program neurologically and emotionally uh, a a search for that other and i'm putting that other in a capital o there uh, Mm -hmm. because that that sort of image gets projected onto various individuals when we meet and each of us has intrapsychic images of the potential other that come partly from our own personal experience and partly from our um, our culture and we we meet tens of thousands of people in an ordinary lifetime Mm -hmm. and upon a few um this projection may alight and and there's a sense there of powerful uh, excitation of hope of, of expectancy And, uh, of course, we realize that behind that projection, we don't know that we've done it. It's unconscious. Projections are unconscious. um, is a real person with his or her flaws, with his or her issues, with his or her problems. So that's why I said in in all relationships, whether it's the individual to another individual or the individual to an institution or the individual to groups in general, um, there are two basic psychological phenomena. The first is projection, because our, our psyche is, is active, it's alive, it's dynamic, it's easily triggered, and it, it, it produces a discharge of energy that leaves us and enters the world. And that happens continuously in the course of any given day. And then transference occurs when we connect seemingly to that other, and, and we transfer then the kind of dynamics that we've hitherto had in that area of, of experience.
0: Let's go back to what you said about the original separation that we experience. So mm-hmm. I'm assuming you mean the trauma of birth. Absolutely, yes. I'm sure that some people have had more traumatic births than others. Mm-hmm. So does what happened during that experience stay with us throughout our lives and kind of inform? The types of relationships that we're looking for or that we have?
2: I, I think yes, but, but you want to add to that quickly. Mm-hmm. You know, that trauma of separation can be significantly mediated by how the infant is then treated okay. by the world it's born into. And And I was talking recently with a person who um, was was placed in um, a medical institution for significant years during her early childhood and ostensibly for medical reasons. And since been discovered, it was because really her, her mother had other preferences. And, um, you know, the institution was not a very good mother to her. So the trauma of separation was heavier in her life mm-hmm. than, say, another child's life, born at the same time, in the same town. So I, I think... You know the the role of the parent is among other things to offer a measure of reassurance, of, of relative uh, predictability, of availability, of consistency, and of nurturing, supportive, loving other. And some children get that, and of course, some children don't.
0: Okay, so when we do, when we don't get that, and I I would huh. venture to say that most of us don't get the ideal right version of that. We Are you saying that we carry that out into the world for the rest of our lives? We're looking to heal that or fill that. And well, not just let me just ask, add one more thing, not sure. just with our romantic relationships, yep. but also with our work relationships and our friendships. Is, is that true?
2: Well, it's bound to play a role. I'm not saying it's the only influence in your life, because mm-hmm. we also have growing independent developmental systems within us designed to promote our independence. So there's that going on as well. However, uh, again, no matter how tall the skyscraper, you have to go through the bottom floors to get to the top. So, you know, our, the, the tenor and the dynamics and the expectations and the hidden agenda of relationships is going to be at least to some degree influenced by our, our life experience. Now, again, that experience can be added to, it can be compensated for, it can be contradicted, uh, it can be reprogrammed, as as life does, depending on other circumstances in our uh, experience. Now, for example, if a person has felt the insufficiency of the nurturant and present other, which is not an uncommon experience, that will create in that person two basic realities or two basic reactions or interpretations or stories, if you will, one is usually diminished sense of self-worth. In other words, uh, I, I, am, I am somehow unworthy. It's not necessarily a conscious thought. It's, a, it's an unconscious thought. I am unworthy or I'm insufficient in myself to be cared for, to be loved, and so forth. And then they will you know, often wind up in self-sabotaging uh, avoidant behaviors in the adult world or the reverse, an inordinate neediness that shows up as clinginess or, or uh, power complexes designed to control and manipulate the other and, and so forth. So you can never say it doesn't play a role. The only question is, um, how strong is that role? In other words, what does it make you do or what does it keep you from doing?
0: You say that all relationships, all relationships uh-huh. begin in projection.
2: Yes, yes, because the other is wholly unknown. So projection is one of the ways we try to make sense of a new world when we enter. In other words, every day is new. Every every experience to some degree is new. But we project onto it, you know, our, our, the category of situation it represents. For example, if you land in a foreign country and a, and a foreign language, the, the first thing you start looking for are signs in your language. You, you, you know, your insecurity will show up in trying to project outwards to say, I need to find areas of familiarity. So you look for signs in English or failing that you look for international signs about where is customs, where, where are the bathrooms, et cetera.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and, and if that's not there, your anxiety begins to, to mount and you might start asking your neighbors, do you speak English? Can you tell me what to do next? etc." So, you know, the projection is simply our way of trying to make sense of the new experience uh, based on what our experiences have been. And the transference is, you know, the history we bring to the table. So that's where that inordinate neediness can show up in a relationship. You know, we're, we're, and you're right, it's not just in intimate relationships. It's with relationships at work, and it shows up in relationships and in, into organizations and institutions. In other words, one of the, the frustrations often of work life is that people are unconsciously looking to be nurtured you know, in their work environment, when they find maybe the agenda there is something quite different, like making money or something like that. And, and they feel chronically frustrated and unhappy, and they have no, no understanding why. And it's because they're asking of the company, or they're asking of their colleagues, something that um, is, is not really the role for that other to play for them.
0: Then we need to realize that it's up to us. Is that what you mean?
2: Well, ultimately, ultimately, the heroic question, and I call it heroic, Mm -hmm. because I think it takes an enormous amount of insight and courage and consistency to remember it, hang on to it, and and to sort of uh, own it, is to say, what am I asking of the other that I need to do for myself? Mm -hmm. In other words, I should never stay in relationships that are denigrating to me, or... Or try to, don't respect me, and so forth. If I do that, then it's because I don't respect myself, you know. Uh, But on the other hand, I can't be looking to the other to make me feel good about me. You know, that's my job. That's not your job. I can't be looking to the other to sort of make up for whatever my, my losses have been in the past. Because that's not love. That's neediness that burdens them. And the best thing I can do for you as my partner is lift off of you the burden of expectations, the the burden of sort of repairing my history, you know, restoring my sense of self-worth. Again, I should never put up any denigration or abuse. I'm not saying that. I'm simply saying that I also want to sort of clean up the agenda between us. And I call it a heroic question because in the abstract, it sounds fairly obvious Mm -hmm. In practice, it means I have to take on something that's very uncomfortable for me. Yeah, and I have to I have to be honest about my fears. I have to be honest about my losses. I have to be honest about where that's gotten me into trouble before. And you know, I've often said to people, you know, one of the best places to start examining the unconscious dynamics, which by definition we don't know about—they're unconscious—is to look at your patterns. You know, you don't rise in the morning and say, well, today I'm going to do the same stupid things I've done for decades, but chances are we will. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: Or today I'm going to mess up my relationship again, as I have in the past. Chances are we will. And why is that the case? And that's because there are certain sorts of driving energies, what Jung called complexes, uh, certain stories, if you will, to use another metaphor, that we're attached to. Those stories are interpretations of what happened to us. You know, life is experiential. It's what, what they call phenomenological. The epiphenomenon is, this say, the story I take away from it. You know, something happens uh, in a family, let's say, and children in the same family will walk away with different stories and live out different scripts and scenarios in their lives, having had the same, roughly the same experience, mm-hmm. but quite different stories. And, and the ends to which their lives go are, are quite different because they've been in service to these different stories. So sometimes, you know, I think about uh, an ongoing depth therapy as one in which it's really a therapy of stories. To say, all right, what are the stories that your life is unfolding, that your life has been in service to, that show up as these patterns in your life or show up in your dreams now, can can we look at them as not who you are, but the story you acquired along life's highway, um, and and often often in an unconscious way, and 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 maybe challenge that story.
0: Do you mean the story that we are telling ourselves internally of what the truth is about our lives? Is that what you mean?
2: Yes. Uh, well, it is internal. In other words, the, sometimes we have a conscious story. About ourselves, like I, I just am a mess up in life. I never, never can experience what I want in life, or I can't do this, or I can't. We we have conscious stories. Many of these stories are unconscious, because and, and I'm calling them stories because they are uh, interpretations. They're narratives. You weren't born with them. So let's just say that the the child child X you see is is brought into a, an environment where where he or she uh, feels very little sense of uh, consistency and support and so forth. So one of the attitudes that they're likely to grow up with is um, distrust. You know, it was based on the reality of their experience. They couldn't trust the predictability and the constancy of the other. So distrust can show up can show up in um, a, a, an adult's life later as constantly distrusting people. I, I had two two clients uh, whose life story was almost identical. They were both men whose mothers departed with someone else when they were the boys were age 10. And when I was seeing them, they were both in the process of, of destroying their marriages out of an inordinate sense of distrust. There was no objective reason to distrust their partner. But the story inside of each of them was, you know, if, if your mother left you, this person to whom you've given your heart and soul is going to leave you too. Mm-hmm. And as, as, as sort of questionable that, as that story is, it had a tremendous power in their lives to the point that it was governing their behaviors. And to some degree, um, creating that story once again. You know, it's, it's the replication of that story that, that in a sense almost becomes the confirmation. See, I couldn't trust you either. In the end, you weren't there for me. And you see how that person would then go on to the next relationship as a kind of prisoner of that story. And we all have stories like that. And that's what creates, for example, our our codependence. You know, codependence is is a common relational strategy. And it's based on the fact that everybody at some level early on in life learned the world's big and you're not. The world's powerful, and you're not. Now, figure out how you're going to manage that. And so we all develop, for example, certain patterns of avoidance. We, you know, we try to stay out of harm's way, stay out of conflict. And that's, that's rational and prudent until the cost of our avoidances in relationships or in the conduct of our minds begin to mount up. Or an, another sort of equally logical strategy that evolves out of that sense of a core powerlessness in the face of a large other is to give them what they want. You know, um, to get along, you go along. Mm-hmm. And that's the birth of what is called codependence, which is a reflexive um, sort of defense of of the arousal or defense against the arousal of inordinate anxiety created by the potential of losing your favor. You see, if I'm an infant wholly dependent upon you for changing my diaper and feeding me, losing your affection is potentially lethal. Mm-hmm. It's at the very least, it's it's harmful. And so that, that story can get transferred and reinforced a thousand times in later in life and one winds up saying yes to something one really doesn't want to, or one winds up going along with a bad situation because... To, to step in and say, but this is what is right for me, will arouse the old story and with it all of that attendant anxiety. And that's often enough to shut the person down in an instant of a second. And then one is, again, a prisoner of the story.
0: I've often heard you mention or refer to things as anxiety management systems. Sure. And so if if we are afraid of losing that connection um, to the other because we're so dependent on it, how can we manage that if we determine that a relationship is ultimately not in our best interest? Mm -hmm. um, But there's still that fear of letting it go, even Mm -hmm. though that might be the best thing for us. How can we cope with that flood of feelings that comes in with, that separation from that other.
2: Certainly. Actually, this, this raises a, another central principle in the book, The Eden Project. And, and I'll say that principle and then get back to your question. And that principle simply is, I can have no better relationship with another, be it the intimate other or the institution or, or work or the, the culture or whatever. That I have achieved in relationship to myself. Where I'm stuck, my relationship will be stuck. Where I'm I'm grabbed by archaic needs, it will show up in the relationship. Where I'm defended, it will produce estranging behaviors in the relationship, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. In other words, again, it's it's a logical conclusion here. And and, and most people get this and they grasp it. Living at as you pointed out, is a much more difficult task. No relationship is any better than the quality of the relationship I have to myself. So to get back into your question, first of all, we have to be reminded that probably again, speaking metaphorically 90% of the energy that's generated by a decision like that is coming from our past. Ten percent is the reality of heartache, the reality of potential loss in the present, the loss of one's investment, the loss of one's hopes. When a relationship doesn't work, it's it's properly to be grieved. If there's no grieving, there was nothing there. There was no investment, no expectation of hope. And and and, and, and so real life ought to cost because it does matter to us. But we're talking about that extra quantity of energy that really comes from one's psychological basement. And it it goes back to the terror of abandonment. And, you know, we have two basic fears, abandonment and overwhelmment. Mm -hmm. And and both of them sort of whipsaw us back and forth. Now I've said with regard to uh, addictions, addictions are reflexive anxiety management systems. In other words, a, a person under stress could turn to a cigarette, turn to a drink, turn to any behavior. And not even necessarily consciously realize they've done it, but in, in doing it, there there is a connection. See, there's the key, there's the connection that momentarily lowers the stress. It's as if, as we're sitting talking electronically with each other, you know, the, the water in the room is rising where we both are. And if by a certain gesture or, or a certain ritualized behavior, um, we, we enacted that and then the water lowered. And, and so, you know, w- we would link the two together. And, and therefore, um, when it started to happen again, whether I was consciously aware of it or not, the reflex would take over. And its purpose was to lower the level of the anxiety that one is experiencing. Because sometimes anxiety is very conscious and present. Many times it's operating unconsciously. And, and I hate to sound reductionistic, but most of our behaviors are around our management of anxiety because you know life is difficult and dangerous and lethal, and yeah. in the end you die. So you know you do have to be on your toes a bit.
0: You know I, I I'm going to interrupt you there because I love it that you say that because I don't hear that too often from many people, and I've got those people out there that are life is great, life is beautiful, life is wonderful. I'm happy to be alive. Um, it's a beautiful day, and I'm thinking, why didn't I get that? Why don't I get that? Why am I not like that? And then I realize, oh, because I'm maybe seeing the world more realistically. But those people, once you know, I open my mouth or they they get any kind of uh, whiff of me, they run the other way. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so I appreciate that about you validating that for me. Thank you, Dr. Hollis.
2: Well, a couple of points, Laura. First of all, I, I want to normalize anxiety. It, it it comes with the human condition. That's mm. why we call it existential angst. You know, it comes from the condition. We are, we are not only, see animals to the best of our ability, most of me, best of our understanding, most of the time don't feel anxiety. They feel fear, fear of predators, fear of fire, et cetera. But they don't meditate on their own mortality, far as we know. We do. We have the imaginative capacity to leave this present moment and imagine our way into other scenarios. And that's what, in some way, allows us to cope with life, to to work in developmental and creative ways with life. And at the same time, it also uh, can occasion anxiety. So, yeah, there are people who have that kind of worldview. And... You know, from time to time, life is beautiful and life is happy. It's not a steady state. It's not a permanent state. One can only stay in that state by remaining very unconscious, very naive, and,
0: and very immature. But when we do express any kind of anxiety, we think there's something wrong. We're no. told to go to the doctor and they write us a prescription for it.
2: I know. And that's the insanity of, of the modern you know medical world. And the pharmaceutical world, by the way, that profits immensely from that to, you know, pathologize in some way normal human emotions, including grief. I I used the word grief a while ago. If you don't grieve after a relationship ends, then there was nothing there in the first place. You know, you should grieve. Grief is not pathological. It's an honest expression of loss and regret. And anything that short circuits the magnitude of that. He is in some way betraying your, your humanity. And I've often seen people who, who blame themselves for being anxious or blame themselves for being depressed rather than understanding, well, so are other people. And, and we still have to find a way to live our life productively and constructively, you know, in the face of those emotions. So if you, you talk about, you know, those, those people whose life view is so bland and they're sort of what a friend of mine called the happy carrots, you know, having no real thoughts at all. They they do that by ignoring the fact that all around them are people suffering, all around them are injustices, and all around them are horrors. And it doesn't mean that one has to dwell on it. One, one simply can't afford to be unconscious. One has to say, that too is part of the world in which I live, and I have to be mindful of that while I also experience the moments of bliss that come to us in life.
0: So, when we do experience anxiety, and, and as you said, we still need to function in the world. So I don't want to just gloss over that. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we need to somehow manage the anxiety.
2: Well, what happens, you know, in, in, in therapy, for example, when we deal, let's just say with the issue you were talking about, a person's in a really bad relationship. But I, I try to point out again, speaking metaphorically, that 90% of the anxiety they're feeling, which is in some way vetoing their doing what is really the right thing for them, the responsible thing, is, is um, uh, coming from their history, from the old story that says in, in its very literalistic way, if you walk away from this, you will perish. You won't be able to make it on your own. It completely ignores the uh, mature, resilient self that has grown up in the meantime there is a person present who is going to take care of you and that person is you 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 can't afford in the face of the old story to forget that nature also gives you resiliency it gives you strength adulthood brings you capacities for other choices the capacity to choose differently in the future you have a journey to live and, and to, in a sense, stop that journey at this point is to voluntarily, in some way, um, you know, sacrifice your reasons for being here. And, and so at the moment, the, the loss of a relation feels catastrophic. But it's because, again, the excitation of that, that ancient story. And underneath that, again, is always a human being who has his or her journey to live in this life. And relationships are important. Now that, that we need to get into the question of in what way are they important uh, mm-hmm. constructively? Because I've tried to suggest there is often this sort of regressive agenda in relationships, where I'm counting on you to sort of make my life work for me or fix things for me. Now, obviously, we support each other in a healthy relationship. I, I want to help you live your journey. You want to help me live mine, etc. That's a kind of basic understanding of relationship, I think, although not everyone fits that, that model. But but beyond that, you see, um, you know, why am I in relationship if, if not this regressive agenda? Um, and the answer is, ironically, the greatest gift of relationship is the otherness of the other. In other words, because you are you, you are different. And because you are different, my engagement with you, my interaction with you, my dance with you enlarges me because I, I, I can be invited. In fact, I'm expected in some way to enlarge, to contain what you bring to this relationship. Now, for example, uh, among other things, my wife is an artist, and as a result, uh, I have learned awful lot about seeing the world in a different way, of, of looking at the world in terms of forms, looking at the world in terms of color schemes, and f- ways of seeing the world that, that I hadn't acquired on my own. So my life is richer for that reason. That, that's called dialogue, you know, two words coming together. In other words, it's the dialectic of relationship, that one plus one equals three, not two. Three being, you know, their, their mode of enlargement through each other. And of course, there's something very wonderful and pragmatic about the division of labor, the sharing of tasks, mm-hmm. sexuality, uh, the sharing of one's hopes and expectations and projects. That's good. Companionship is fine. Um, but in addition, there is, is really growth. Do I grow through this relationship? And the truth is, for example, At times, we outgrow people we've known in the past, outgrow friends. You might see people you went to grade school with, high school, college, and you realize, you know, my my life is taking me a wholly different journey. Uh, Blessings to them on on their journey, but mine's a different one. And we don't really have a a real connection anymore. We don't have to just for nostalgia's sake. Um, what, what, What I have is my journey. And new people, new experiences will be met along the way. So, you know, uh, life, life is a journey. I mean, if it's not a journey, then it's stuckness. And there are plenty of people stuck mm-hmm. in it. And they're stuck usually because they're prisoners of some kind of archaic story that, that is defining them and, and threatening them with so much punitive anxiety that they, they just can't break
0: from it. So this book, um, In Search of the Magical Other, which is the subtitle, Mm -hmm. You're saying, you're pointing out that we are looking for this other to complete us when that's not possible. It's not possible for them to give us what it is we're looking for in them, right? That's right. But I've also learned in my study of Jung psychology that we can't individuate alone. Mm -hmm. We need mirrors. We need We need other people. That's right. And also we're social beings, right? Mm -hmm. We need each other. Yeah. So what is it about relationship that you wanted to say through this book um, about, I guess I'm trying to, I'm trying to figure out how to sort of condense it down into what is the message here?
2: Sure. Well, it's a very good question and and let me just say first of all the the most damaged relationship we will ever experience is the relationship we have with ourselves. Yeah. And it's that that we bring to the table. And therefore, you know, our partiality, our stuck places, our complexes, our inordinate expectations all wind up in injurious ways in the traffic between us. So again, I have a strong ethical summons if i become aware of it to be accountable for that because if if i'm not you are and that's not love that's that's burdening people you see jung, jung said that if you you know from time to time we need to learn to be by ourselves and and to sort of pay attention to the conversation that's going on in, in there because there's a conversation going on inside of us all the time and if you don't think so what do you think is managing your digestive process at this moment? You know, what do you think is, is taking care of your emotional life? And, um, you know, what, what is producing your dreams? There, there are other clusters or centers of energy in, inside of each of us. And I'm simply ignorant of that. It keeps spilling into the world unconsciously, mm-hmm. piling up as consequences, imposing themselves on you and upon my children. Now, by the way, there's a good good example. One of the most messed- up relationships is between parent and child, of course, because most parents uh, have strong narcissistic needs, that is to say, they need for emotional reassurance, so they use their children. You know In other words, I want my child to endorse my religious values, my social, political values, grow up very much like me, you know, hang around and when I'm old and ailing, come take care of me. Well, you know, <laughs> much in our culture endorses those points of view. But, you know, it can lead to the murdering of the soul of the child who has a different journey and, and, you know, freeing our children from us. Jung said, the greatest burden the child must bear is the unlived life of the parent. So where I have not shown up to face my own journey will be dumped on my children, either as a limiting example that they serve or trying to escape or as some kind of message to them. You know, you're not allowed to to live your journey because you're, you have to stay and sort of take care of mine. So to come back to the question here, the um, need for others is substantial. And, and Jung said if we isolate too much, we wind up speaking to ghosts. Most people yeah. are afraid of talking to themselves. They're afraid of, of of being alone. And that's why people are so electronically needy and addictive at this point. But, but if we don't do that, we have nothing to bring to the table. But then on the other hand, uh, too much isolation means I can get caught in the loops of my own complexes and my own limitations. So the other provides the service of sort of pulling me out of um, myself, you know, pulling me out of the, that self-referential circle. I remember years ago uh, being in a dream group, uh, I was conducting a dream group and. Another city, and uh, one person was constantly writing a sort of long, thoughtful, even scholarly essay on her dreams, and and sort of read that after the dream, and it sort of shut down the conversation, and and that went on a couple of times until someone said, "But you know, I didn't see your dream that way," and it was something inside of her just really crumbled, and I think we all realized at that moment what she was doing was ironically trying to consult the unconscious to see what it had to say to her and yet wanting to stay on top of that conversation and manage it which she was doing through her essays Mm -hmm. and the moment that someone else confronted her was the moment she was beginning to really learn something about herself so the the same is true for relationship we need others again for the dialect uh engaging you in relationship means i have to enlarge i have to in some way include what you bring in my sense of, of reality.
0: Well, what about relationships that are with people that it's always about them? Now, this might say something about me, but it's always about them. They never ask me how I am, what I'm doing, you know, where I'm going, how do I feel, uh, never. It's always, every conversation with them is all about them.
2: Well, you're talking about, people whose narcissistic needs prevail.
0: Right. But d- that also, ha- I, I have some part in that too, right? Of course you do. Of okay, course you so do. So what's you have- my, what's my part in that?
2: Well, I don't know your history and I don't care to at this moment, but the point is I just looking at it as, as a pattern, the pattern mm-hmm. says, all right, somewhere along the line, one story included, you know, this comment, that is to say, you know, your needs don't matter that much. What matters is the needs of people around you. So, you know, keep your mouth shut and sort of pay attention and fit in. And if you do, things will go better that way. Now, I'm, I'm in a sense translating uh, a story that may have occurred when the child is four years old, you know, depending on the circumstances. So that's why I say, you know, we, we began to get some sense of the kinds of stories or complexes our life is in service to by looking at our patterns.
0: Right. And what, uh, what I I remember now, what I wanted to say before, when you mentioned that the most something about the most difficult relationship we'll have is the relationship we have with ourselves and why I went off on this Twitter tirade. um, mm-hmm. And. Something else I wanted to add before about, okay, well, when you were talking, I was thinking, well, this is the purpose of going into analysis is to look at ourselves because mm-hmm. what we're encouraged to do, what I, the message that I got through my decades of life on this planet is to always blame everybody else for everything.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And um, uh, it was a rude awakening when I was taught, told that you know it it was about me, so that's why I went into analysis at a very young age. Mm-hmm. but what I saw the other day was people were pointing the fingers their finger at other people at mm-hmm. and nobody was seemed to wanted to know what our role was in these tragedies sure. that were going on, and I said that, you know, stop, stop looking at every, at what everybody else is doing and start looking at what you're doing.
2: Well, look, everybody has wounds to their sense of self-worth. It's, it's impossible in life not to pick them up along the way. The pragmatic question always is what do those wounds and their attendant stories make you do? What do they keep you from doing? And so some people will, will wind up again in avoidance and self-sabotaging patterns Others will wind up in overcompensation, grandiosity, and narcissism. Because when you look at narcissism, for example, and everybody has a narcissistic wound, which is a wound to your sense of worth, but that doesn't make a person a narcissist.
0: Okay. Um,
2: a, a narcissist is, is truly a person dominated by an inadequate sense of, of worth. So he or she is always caught in some kind of power complex. And he or she is always in some way trying to manipulate from others um, reinforcements of their shaky sense of self-worth. You know, the narcissist looks in the mirror and never shows nobody shows up in the mirror. You know, nobody stares back. So they have to use other people. If it's a parent, then the parent is, is using the children for their own sense of worth. And many parents do that. If it's the employer, the employer takes the credit for the employee's work. And, and wherever you see narcissism, you, you see usually the power complex. And as you pointed out, where power prevails, love is not. Power is present in all relationships, and, and it's it can be healthy. It's it's the use of energy to address the tasks of life. But when it gets caught in a story or a complex, it can obviously be evil. It can bring harm. And, and the, the whole narcissist game is around control and management of others for one's own sense of self-worth
0: i think that because we're toward the end here what people want to know is what do we do you know what, what what do we do now okay so the search for the magical other isn't going to give us what we think it's going to give us this other person cannot possibly fulfill the needs that we have so what do we do now
2: the romantic fantasy is the chief drug of choice of popular culture okay mm-hmm. and it's a drug that we've all uh, ingested and enjoyed and wound up of course ultimately having to deal with its disappointment because reality is reality so it doesn't we don't have to become cynical that way uh mm-hmm. or as a result of that or bitter or strange we simply have to say if i approach Life and relationship with more realistic expectations. And if I've first of all examined myself and said, again, I am responsible for my own well being, I am here to make my life work, not somebody else's, uh, then, you know, I can approach others less encumbered and less expectant. Because again, the, the whole point here is if you can't tolerate yourself. With your shortcomings and failures that we all have, you know, in, in the end, you know, it's not going to be a very healthy relationship with others. You know, again, as much as a cliche as it seems, and cliches become cliches because they're repeatedly true, mm-hmm. I have to deal with myself first, with my own narcissistic impulses, with my own avoidance impulses, with my own codependent impulses, where my my own power complex or controlling complex comes up or where my neediness imposes itself. You know, those are in all of us to some degree, and they're human. You don't have to fault yourself for that. Welcome to human nature, but you you are accountable for them. And the better job I could do that, the more I free my children, the more I free my partner, the more I feel my, free my colleagues at work from having to carry the burden of my unfinished business.
0: So withdrawing projections from that we put on other people um, is our responsibility, is our task.
2: Sure. And, and if we don't withdraw them, reality withdraws them for us because the otherness of the other always wears through. Mm. We begin to, to see the other and often people end relationships with a sense of let down bitterness like you failed me. You, you're not what I expected from you. Well, guess what? You never were. What I was imposing on you was, you know, that archaic agenda, my own projections, my own transferential histories. That's what I've done to you unwittingly. So if I recognize that and have some some accountability for that, then I'm going to be less setting you up for conflict and manipulation and less setting me up for the inevitable uh, uh, disappointment that occurs when a projection erodes. Because... What can emerge from the, you know, dissolution of a projection is something eminently worth loving. You know, you see the other person as a flawed human being like you Mm -hmm. and you feel that affection for them. They are eminently worthy of your love and investment. You know, the in love state is that romantic elixir that's going to fix your life. And when it, uh, when it's triggered, it, it sets off all kinds of endorphins and so forth, um, and it's a wonderful feeling, and is transient and And what can survive is something called love, which is eminently worthy of our investment and our commitment.
0: So not not just seeing them as a flawed individual, which is part of it, but also sure. in the way that they treat you that that's okay, too, that they're not going to treat you perfectly. They're not going to treat you. You know, I'm not going to be treated like a queen. I'm not going to be put first all the time.
2: That's right. That's right. This other
0: person has needs as well. Well, of course.
2: I mean, once we pull it out into consciousness, it's pretty obvious, isn't it?
0: Mm -hmm. I mean, in other words,
2: what I have found with People listening to this kind of conversation about the Eden Project or in talks and so forth is nobody refutes the basic principles because they frankly are logical. Once you really made them conscious and looked at them in the light of day, but it still occasions a resistance in us because of the pull of that archaic project, you know, the desire to go home, as it were, the desire to find the perfect parent in the other. You know, no couple at the altar would say, you know, I'm counting on you to be my, my unfinished mother or my, my better father. And they wouldn't say that. It's, it's ostensibly a time for leaving mother and father. And yet the archaic agenda is, is imposing itself, meaning that the marriage is also transacting at this old, ancient, archaic level. And that's what leads to conflict and disappointment in, in relationships.
0: You say at the end of the book, in the afterword, early on, I warned the reader how disappointing my words might be, how I do not like their premises myself. Mm-hmm. Perhaps their only virtue is that despite our heart's desire, they are valid. The evidence is strong that there are no magical others, that we befoul our relationships with our own psychic debris, that the best relationship we can ever achieve with the intimate other the corporate other, and the holy other is a function of the relationship we achieve to ourselves. And that, people are going to ask, well, how do we do that? And Jungian analysis is one way. Um, It's the way that I chose. It's what uh, makes the most sense to me. It's what rings truest for me. But that doesn't mean that I and not still hooked by all of this. That's another thing I want to point out. My relationships are still tumultuous at times. They still break at times. I still rant and rave and scream and yell and project and Mm -hmm. cry. But I have a lot more consciousness around it. And they don't last as long.
2: Yeah, that's right. You pull yourself out of the hole because you're trying to be accountable. You have more insights. Than you did in the past. You have more uh, resilience than you had in the past. Mm-hmm. More you have more options than you had in the past, and you're choosing to be accountable, and that's that's the best augury of a uh, of, of improved relationships for the future. You know how do we do this? By personal accountability, by by self monitoring. Where did that come from to me? What's that in service to? What's that really about? And you can't necessarily trust your first response. Those would be the complexes or the story defending themselves. Mm-hmm. You have to say, I've got to get underneath that and say where it's really coming from. And when you do that, you recognize the vestiges of that archaic agenda. And, and, and you're saying, all right, I know where that comes from now. I can deal with what I know is present. It's, it's what I don't know that continues to deal with me. And that's the hope of consciousness. You know, we're, we're not solving people's problems. Mm-hmm. Life is not a problem. It's, a, it's a, an experiment to live. It's, it's a journey to unfold. And you will have many trials along the way. And, and the best you can do is work on yourself to be ready for them when they come.
0: Thank you, Dr. Hollis. You're welcome. I'd like to again thank Dr. Hollis for his time today. And I look forward to speaking with him again in the future, if he agrees. As I am a big proponent of face to face interaction, I'd like to point out the many opportunities there are to see Dr. Hollis in person by attending one of his public talks. The remaining cities he'll be visiting this year are Charlotte, North Carolina, College Park, Maryland, London, England, Washington, D.C., Philadelphia, and Atlanta. Next year, in 2018, He's already scheduled to speak in Sarasota and Fort Lauderdale, Florida, Richmond, Virginia, Dallas, Minneapolis, Montreal, Portland, and St. Louis. You can find out more on his website, jameshollis.net. In addition to his lectures, he'll be doing a four-session course on the interpretation of dreams at the Jung Society of Washington, D.C. in September and October, and I'd like to point out his lecture there on November 3rd called Funny Bones on the Psychology of Humor. You can find links to all of these on our website, speakingofjung.com. J-U-N-G, there you'll also find all of the previous episodes of this podcast which are available to listen to or to download for free. The episodes are also available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, as well as a whole host of other listening platforms, which you'll find links to on our About page. Thank you to all of the followers on Twitter and Facebook, to everyone who has made a donation to help cover production costs, and to those of you who have written reviews. And with special thanks to Daryl Sharp and Liz Jefferson of Inner City Books, Dick Sweeney and Gina Peacock at the Jung Association of Central Ohio, to Diane Braden and to Michael Deacon, this is Laura London, and you've been listening to Speaking of Jung.